Hey y'all, welcome to Detoxicity, a show about progressive masculinity. I'm the show's host and producer, Mike Joseph. If you enjoy what you're hearing on the show, I kindly ask that you smash the subscribe button on whichever platform you're using to listen. Also, please don't hesitate to rate, comment, and recommend. If you have someone in your life that could get something out of the conversations we're having here, tell them about the show. Also, feel free to follow me on social media. I'm Detox Pod Guy on Instagram and Tiz Mike Joseph, that is T I S Mike Joseph on Twitter. You can even email me, detoxpod at gmail.com. Don't hesitate to reach out if you know someone who might be interested in being interviewed on the show or if you have any other ideas or constructive criticism. Most importantly, I thank you very much for listening. Stay well. Kevin Devine is a world-renowned independent singer-songwriter with something like two dozen combined studio albums, live albums, and EP. That is a lot of music, folks. He records solo with his band, which is called The Goddamn Band, and as a member of Bad Books with Manchester Orchestra's Andy Hull. Kevin came up through the punk and hardcore scene in New York City, where he was born and currently makes his home. Is Brooklyn in the house or what? I've had the good fortune of seeing Kevin perform for audiences both big and intimate, and what always impresses me is his connection with his audience. They hang on to every song lyric, and they also cheer his socio-political opinions, which he is not shy about uh, discussing. It was for this reason, and this reason particularly, that I wanted him to be on a Detoxicity podcast, and thank you to the people that made that happen. Uh, Kevin did not disappoint. Uh, Starting with his roots, Kevin walks us through growing up in Staten Island, which is historically New York City's most conservative borough, uh, with a cop as a father, but being given the freedom to explore his own beliefs. We talk a little bit of NYC evolution and gentrification. We discuss Kevin's idols, Kurt Cobain and Elliot Smith, and their relationships with masculinity. And we try to figure out how, how all of this relates to his continuing personal evolution. I keep saying each conversation I have on this podcast is one of my favorites, and I mean it wholeheartedly. There have been some really, really, really great conversations on this, and they're not due to me. They're due to the people that I'm talking to. Uh, I feel like this chat is one of those that upped the ante, so everybody check out Kevin Devine. Well, my name is Kevin Devine. I am a bunch of things, but I guess in a niche public-facing way, I am a musician. I write songs and perform them. I'm from Brooklyn, New York. Grew up in Brooklyn and Staten Island. Went to college in Manhattan. Been in Brooklyn since. A few different neighborhoods in Brooklyn. 41 years old. I play under my own name. I play in a band called Bad Books sometimes, which is with the guys from Manchester Orchestra. I sometimes play by myself. I sometimes play with the backing collective that's called the Goddamn Band. That's had about 30 members probably since 2003. Sometimes I write songs for other people. Sometimes I've played in other people's bands. And I'm a dad. I have a five-year-old daughter. I'm a divorced dad who has a three-dimensional friendship with his ex-wife based on a lot of work and willingness and her grace, I would say, above all and a long-suffering Mets and Knicks fan who's experiencing <laughs> nominal relief this year around both so yeah even though the Knicks got bounced unceremoniously I, I, I was just kind of happy to be there at that point but you know it's fine because the Hawks have clearly they were turned, they, turned they've turned things up a notch it's like when you lose to the yes it's like uh, in a prior it's like if the team you root for loses to a team that either ends up winning the championship eventually or at least going further in that pursuit you're like oh that's cool they were just actually better than us and and even though the Knicks beat up on the Hawks this year I feel like even if you were watching those games you were kind of like 
we don't have a player like that. Like if that dude wants to, you know what I mean? Like right. and a play, it, the player turn it up different. a notch. Anyway, I like that I've gotten to the Mets and the Knicks <laughs> in the first three minutes of describing who I am. It's all good. But yeah, yeah. That's okay. some version of who I am. I'm sure it's there's a lot of other stuff too. But well, yeah. we're we're all multi-dimensional folks. Yeah. So yeah, I totally get hope. that. Yeah. yeah. So you are a lifelong New Yorker, which I, as a almost lifetime New Yorker, can relate to. I've had little spaces living outside of the city, outside the state. Um, You're born here? Yeah. Born and okay. raised in Brooklyn, have lived in every borough with the exception of Staten Island, which I do want to talk about. Yeah, we'll get there. Uh, but also lived in Michigan for a couple of years and lived in Boston for a few years as well. Gotcha. So I was just able to get out of the city for a little bit. Yeah. I've spent a bunch of time on tour in Michigan. I've spent a bunch of time on tour, but also in various other contexts in Boston. My daughter's mom's family's from Hingham, south okay. of Boston. And my brother went to school up in Providence. So we would go up to Boston sometimes. And I had another ex whose family was from like the Cape, Wellfleet. Ooh, like that. fancy. Yeah. No, they no? were like in shacks. There, there's, there's a whole other underbelly. There's the people who live in Wellfleet all year. They're not the people that go to okay. Wellfleet in the summer. And this was a lot more underbellied, you know? This was like the characters like Andre Debout, is that that guy's name that wrote the story that became in the bedroom? Like all, it was like townies, you know? And I relate, because on some level, I feel like as a lifelong outer borough person, we're sort of townies too. Like we're not like the Manhattan people and we're not like the people that come into New York with some kind of economic leverage or flexibility. I grew up in Bay Ridge, you know? It's not like Bay Ridge is, uh, I'm just saying there's layers of complexity to the definition in a place like that as connects to the larger narrative of a city like here. And I think oh, yeah. that's true of places like Massachusetts and stuff. It's like all those students go home and then it's like, who the hell lives in Boston? Absolutely. And we can even correlate that to the influx of gentrifiers yeah. uh, that have emerged since maybe the mid 2000s. We're kind of the same era. Yeah. And as lifelong New Yorkers, I can think of, you know, I used to pick my buddy up to play basketball in Bay Ridge back when I was in high school. And, you know, Bay Ridge in 1992 to go back to that year in Bay Ridge in 2021 or different places. Yes. To a large extent. Yes. In ways that I actually think in ways that are like quantified, obviously everything is subjective and depends upon how you want to move through the world. But to me in ways that I think are like quantifiably, well, it's complicated. There are some things that are quantifiably better. What to uh, better is a funny word, but that I would say improved. Yes. I think it's a more it's a more diverse place, not just with respect to like where people were born or where people come from or whatever, family of origin, lineage, but with respect to also that's been pulled left demographically in some ways. A lot of younger people, the dude that represents Bay Ridge and the borough council <laughs> is this guy, Justin Brannon. And Justin was in a hardcore, is still plays in bands, but he was in indecision when I was growing up. And I was like, my first band, Delusion, when I was in high school, used to like, open shows I mean, we were like an alternative rock band that was allowed to play with hardcore and punk bands because there was a hardcore punk scene and, and there was the little bridge was like you know nirvana brought that, a little of that to the mainstream sure. and then through nirvana you got into like if you liked sonic youth and then eventually sunny real estate and super chunk and pavement and stuff like that there was like a little bit of a dotted line to punk and hardcore 
So our band was pretty squarely in the tuneful but loud space. Sure. But we got to play with those bands. Indecision was much more of a like breakdown, chug, chug, hardcore band, fist in the air, everybody sing that one line thing. But that's our borough councilman now. You know, and he ran as a Democrat. In fact, there were people that ran to the left of him. And, and I, Justin may not know this, but in, in the primary, I actually initially voted to the left of him and then voted for him because he was still there. And I was proud to, happy to. But Bay Ridge has changed a lot in that way. I think what has, there's also a little bit more money floating around out here. It's been slow to properly gentrify because of how far we are. Yes. From, but it's come. It's certainly, it's not the way it's come in North Brooklyn. Right. No, it's, it's uh, no, definitely it's not. It's trickled. And, and I think the things that were, it's that assimilation story, you know, like I grew up in a Bay Ridge with, that, with like ethnic white people. It was a lot of like Irish, Italian, Polish, Greek, and there were smatterings of like Chinese American community. I had friends that were secular practicing Jewish people. And, and, and et cetera, and some like primary Spanish speaking people, but it was definitely different percentages. Oh yeah, 100%. I, I think what's one of the great American bummers, of course, is that as ethnic white people get deeper into the assimilation process, they sort of just lose the ethnic part and just become white people. And the people out here that were here in 1992, that would, that would be of that demographic, in 2021 are 30 years older and 30 years more calcified and 30 years more. So I think a lot of them just went out to Staten Island and that's why Staten Island's just kind of gotten even more radical. And I don't I don't know the right word to use close-minded, let's say. Yeah. But, but I think, so Bay Ridge is interesting because I actually think there's like, there's a really fifth Avenue, super vibrant Palestinian community up where I am, seventh, eighth Avenue. It's like, I'm two blocks away from like one of the three largest Chinatowns in 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 Manhattan, in New York, excuse right. me, which is like the, th the one, it's kind of the shadow one that people don't know as much about. <laughs> but if you go up to 8th Avenue here, there's like 10 blocks where it's, it's just so clear. You're like, that's where you are. But then 3rd Avenue, there's still some like, you know, old angry Irish people that are yeah. holding on yeah. <laughs> for it, dear it, fucking it, life. But yeah. It, it's interesting. You talk about what you talk about because I, I, when I was in high school, I went to Brooklyn Tech, oh, and yeah. um, and there were no no generic like waspy white people. Everybody was Russian or Jewish or yes. Greek. It it felt like. Whereas you know, I remember coming back from living in Boston. I moved back to New York in 2015, and being like, "Where did all of these waspy people come from?" Like it, it just was like this this influx. Yeah. yeah. No, I, I, I feel like, so I come from, and these are all fraught identities as well, but there are also things about them that I think have some like, like peasant lineage value to them, parochial, provincial in some ways, but also like of the earth in some ways, like no long line of like Irish Catholic or new fee, new fees, like super poor new fee people from Canada that were all ultimately bog dwelling, Irish, Welsh, Scottish, you know, transplants of their own. And I know there's a part of me and I'm pretty white. You're, you're pretty, part, you're pretty yeah, pale, Kevin. Pretty, pretty pale. I know there's a part <laughs> of me that when I'm in a 
part of my family's story is that they grew up in, in Park Slope, you know, but I'm talking like 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. I lived in Park Slope for five years in the early 2010s. I have a lot of friends that live there. I like a lot of those restaurants and coffee shops and love the park and I like to run and I ride a bike sometimes too. But there are conversations. I brought my daughter down to the Park Prospect Park West playground in the middle of COVID. Because when the playgrounds were open, like you were living in the playgrounds if you were mm -hmm. a parent, you know, and especially if a small kid, that's what you did. I spent like six months of last year in playgrounds, six hours a week, a day, excuse me. Park playground was the one place that I took her in COVID. This is not meant to be pithy or a joke where I was just like, I don't feel safe here. And it was because like, it was sort of a feral pack of waspy Montessori schooled, no boundaries, no rules. Like that's the one place I was in six months where some little kid ran up and spit water in the middle of COVID, like in my daughter's face as part Holy of like shit. a game. And the conversations you would overhear I don't want to move through the world from a, but it would ignite this inner, both like this complex net cocktail of like judgment, shame, inclusive, exclusive, part of, not part of, you know, and I just was like, I think we'll just stick to Owl's Head Park because I, I don't know what to do here. And I say that because I feel like Park Slope is a place where I'm like, again, love parts of it. Lots of, that. there was a wasp bomb that went off there at some <laughs> point. Anyway. The entitlement bomb. Yeah, the entitlement bomb. Indeed, indeed. So I'm curious where, where you got your politics growing up, because you are definitely a, a very progressive musician. It's in your song lyrics. I've seen you live and it's in your conversations with the audience. It's in your writing. It's on your social media. How did that develop? Or was it something that you grew up kind of espousing? Well, yes and no. And, and just as a, it's interesting, the inner, the inner critic or the inner rush to, I, I feel like I could be so much more progressive or vocal. I've developed really complicated feelings about the nature of public facing politics in the age of social media, especially because I think it's, I don't know, my brain is just, it's very noisy about that. Mm. It's very clear to me that there is, there are not two sides. There is one side that is like a radical death cult that wants to extinguish the march of progress, science adherence, that is not really living in the same reality. And then there is this other thing that sort of purports, it presents itself as a left, but is actually more like a center right. And then there's everyone else, which I would actually say is a lot of us that operate to the left of that. And I know where I personally feel most aligned, like it's pretty reflexive and apparent and it's not, it's neither the center right nor the death cult. But, but I just feel like we've gotten into such a complex space about how we present these things publicly and what passes for like intellectually serious conversation and debate and what actually serves progress. And then I also feel like I don't know that I get to make those determinations because what the fuck do I know? And also I'm encumbered by my specific lenses. So it's just funny to hear you identify me as that in that way, because my instant thing is to be like, 
It's like, I'm not, I this, I mean, with full love and, and it's my own inner critic. I, I, I also mean like, there's nothing activist oriented about, like you didn't say this word, I'm using this word. Whenever right. someone's like, you're an activist, it's like, no maybe I'm a solidarity worker at best. I know activists, activists are doing shit out in the street that I don't do. I don't do it with great frequency. If I do do it, it's usually as part of a much larger whole and it's kind of infrequent from being honest. You know what I mean by those. I totally know what you mean. Yeah. Yeah. So I just want to be clear about that. The other thing that, but, but, but about whatever it is that I, I espouse to believe that shifts on a daily basis, but the basic parenthetical grouping of it, I mean, my dad was born in 1935, Irish, cop, Park Slope, Catholic. My experience of my father, he passed away in 2003, was different to the two kids that he had with his, in his he was married prior. Mm. There were two kids in the 50s when they were 20 years old, the parents two kids in the 60s and then my dad that marriage ended and then and my dad married my mom and there's me and Dan 7982 if you're doing the math my father fathered children in the 50s 60s 70s and 80s but i love my dad there's a lot of great there and a willingness in my experience of him i can't speak for any of my other half siblings if you live long enough you're a bunch of different people my version of my, there was more of a willingness to be open to different perspectives, given some of what you might draw from some of the information I just shared. I don't know if my dad ever voted for a Democrat for president. You know what I mean? I also know that when my dad passed away in 2003, we were having conversations about the Iraq war and George W. Bush and where my father was ver vocally, verbally, like, this is not right we are doing something wrong. You know what I mean? Like there, it wasn't this automata. Sure. And also I would make the argument, it's been a long arc from Nixon to here, but I would make the argument that it meant something different to be Irish Catholic Republican in 1968 than it does to be a, a member of the card carrying member of the Republican party in 2021. That being said, we are talking about a continuum and a fact. So, so I guess what I'm saying is this without, we're neither excusing or condemning. My politics did not come from my dad when I was a kid, when I was maybe eight years old, seven years old. You think these people are God? I like wrote an essay in second grade in public school about like Ronald Reagan, you know? Okay, I was, I mean, I was seven, sure. but I thought, but I thought Ronald Reagan, they, they might as well have been talking about. Jesus Christ or fucking Daryl Strawberry or something like they yeah. were all just these like it's a superhero yeah, that's the other thing you're Captain America or something yeah. but my mother who is a little younger than my dad and grew up in, in Bay Ridge and my mom was a teenager in the 60s and my mom internalized Joan Baez and Bob Dylan and Sam Cooke and Otis Redding and yes the Kennedys but also Martin Luther King and Malcolm X and also like you know Buffy St. Marie and Phil Oaks and 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 you know Beatles and every other thing so she had a different set of cultural information given where she grew up but a different set of um touchstones you know and i think my mom's family experience was a little different anyway i think the narrative in our family is that my mom sort of softened 
some of those things about my dad and like mm. oh, helped helped encourage because my dad was also a kid that we're not going to live here forever but when he was like six in catholic school drew and wrote with his left hand wrote poetry and drew pictures and they beat him with the ruler and made him a righty and you're 1948 you're not going to be an artist you're not going to be a poet you're a fucking irish catholic kid from park slope you're going to be a cop or a fireman or a bartender you know what i mean effectively right and so i'd like to think but but, but my, so so that's the foundation i don't know i don't know how much of that like we weren't talking about politics in fact they didn't even tell me who they voted for ever there was that kind of thing where it was like and then i guess being get into music eventually now i'm 12 when i hear nirvana and i see a sticker on his guitar in, a, in circus magazine and it says, vandalism as beautiful as a rock in a cop's face. And I was like, why would somebody want to throw a rock in a cop's face? Yeah, I can imagine as a 12 year old and as the son of a cop, how did that hit you in a, in a particular way? It made me curious. Cause I knew who Public Enemy was. I knew Sinead O'Connor had the Public Enemy logo shaved into the side of her head. And I knew who Sinead O'Connor was. And I knew that she sang a song called Black Boys on Mopeds about right. cops rest you know that anyway that was in like beginning and then reading the liner notes to incesticide where i don't know where he said like if you are a homophobe a sexist a racist in any other way uh a bigot please do us a favor and stay the fuck away from our band i'd rather our band stops being popular than you like our band you know i don't want to paint angel angel wings on the kirk cobain was a formative influence to me and there's a lot there that I actually think when I look at it from the lens of 2021 and on the conversation of masculinity as well, it's low key miraculous to me that somebody who at least like tried to interface with some of the information he was interfacing with riot girl, feminism, some of these radical, like also did it through the lens of like, he, there was a part of him that did want to be like a famous person. And there was a part of him that did want to like change the culture and Yes, they wrote great songs. It's also, you get a little older and you're like, he also was like a blonde haired, blue eyed guy that sort of looked like Brad Pitt. It's not super mysterious that they had a better shot while they were also writing sneaky Beatles songs right. like then maybe Tad, who was led by like a overweight lumberjack or whatever the fuck it was to get to that position. But there still is something really beautiful about that moment. And that was a moment that they lead you, they led me to punk rock. They led me to hardcore in some ways, even like to, I was into like whatever radio nineties hip hop was on around me. And you know what, you knew the singles from the West coast stuff that was happening, but then you like dug a little deeper into like, well, Dr. Dre was an NWA. What is that? Oh shit. And then you like get these public enemy records. And then, you know, Nirvana wasn't millions of dead cops, but somebody who liked, you know, they had a millions of dead cops tape. That, it, that was like in his uh, diary. So there's all these points of connection. And then when I was a teenager, I got into, I was never like a punk hardcore kid because I like songs too much. Those are songs, but I'm always gonna, I'm just, a, I want a song. And that's why I loved a band like Nirvana was they had the energy of that, but they had, they were songs. They yeah, were, you know. You play those songs on an acoustic guitar. There are melodies and, and yes. choruses that stick in your head. Yes. And, and so I'm a sucker for that, but I loved the 
availability, energy, and egalitarian spirit of punk music. I love that I could go to a fucking VFW hall on Staten Island in 1994. I could play and then I could watch bands from sometimes as far away as like fucking Edmonton or, uh, you know, Arizona or, or whatever. And there was this network of people like running distros out of their living rooms and getting records and zines and book it and like vegan food being cooked in the back for two bucks. And that's the first place I ever heard veganism, Karl Marx, Malcolm X, Peter Singer, Animal Liberation, Socialism, Riot Girl, all of these radical, radical, whatever you want to call it, to, uh, to a kid who was going to Monsignor Farrell High School on Staten Island, Nirvana was radical. The fact that there was a guy who didn't really care if his guitar was in tune and if he could hit the notes playing between like Michael Jackson and Guns N' Roses on award shows, who was getting up and telling half his audience, don't come here anymore if that's the stuff. Like that was radical. But then you start finding the stuff that you're like, oh, this is like radical. And there was more consideration, you know, it was different. So I, whatever amalgam of politics, that's the root. And then getting into, we're not towards the end of college for me, it was like when Nader ran. And, and like hearing what Nader was saying, as opposed to what Gore was saying, as opposed to what Bush was saying, there was a very clear, like of the three, you put me behind like John Rawls, that philosopher, like the veil of ignorance of the three, I know who I'd pick reflexively, it's that one. And then right. you up and you're like, well, that's Nader. Okay, then I guess I'm more there than with this guy who I'm, and then 9-11 happens. And there's this moment where you're kind of like sitting there watching as the drums beat and we, you, this, this, you're a New Yorker and you're here and that happens and it's an unspeakable trauma and tragedy and the complexity and brutality of all of that. But then how that got sort of weaponized into this kind of jingoistic, militaristic, nationalistic, capitalistic, yeah. rapacious, let's go assert our will around the world in ways that are very loosely, if actually not at all connected to the thing that happened. And also let's take no opportunity to do a kind of inventorying about what role our imperialist foreign policy plays in radicalizing people in other places to want, like those are examinations that uh, feels like we almost always, whenever the opportunity arises for this country in particular to examine itself, those examinations don't go deep enough for reasons that make sense. Not at all. Yeah. And then, you know, it's through that you get into, I have a friend who was a card carrying member of the Marxist humanist initiative and I, I go to revolution, but I'm, I don't know what the fuck I am. I'm a lot of things, but I we would, can tell you multitudes, man. Yeah. And I would go, I would go visit that stuff. I'd listen some of the things I'd agree with some of the things maybe I didn't, but I felt much more. And then in the last, with respect to what happens, you know, I think that I veer toward like the DSA and I've certainly find some cause for enthusiasm with respect to like the youth movement and the leftmost wing of the Democratic Party and AOC and, you know, Rashida Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. And I was a person who was proud to primary for Bernie and, and found some of the Bernie bro narrative confusing because it felt to me like a way to obfuscate like a politics of humanity that like if Bernie Sanders, all I know is no one's perfect. That dude's not either. But in 2000, Ralph Nader and Bernie Sanders are like roughly analogous maybe where they would fall. Maybe Bernie mm -hmm. might even be to the left on some things of Ralph, depending on what you're analyzing. And Ralph is in other words, that dude garnered 1.4% or whatever the fuck it was. And 
Now we have a conversation happening in this country for all the other fucked up, insane, terrifying, existential shit that's happening in this country. There are a whole bunch of people that are willing to talk about like socialized medicine and fucking universal basic income and like examining the militaristic impulses of, and I think Bernie Sanders did a lot to make to mainstream that conversation and the movement that that, that grew up around him. So that's part of my politics too. Anyway, I don't know. It's a mission, it's, it's, but, but what I did think I took from my dad who, by the end of his life, my dad and I could talk about this stuff. And it wasn't like, but my dad didn't tell me I couldn't like Nirvana, even though he had that sticker on his guitar. In fact, when Kurt Cobain killed himself, my dad called me at my brother John's house. My mom called and she was like, I'm talking about John Lennon, what, how, where she was when John Lennon died. And she was, and they're playing this unplugged. And I know I always told you this just got kind of sounded like he was just yelling the same words over and over again. But now I'm hearing these songs and they're really songs. I didn't understand. Wow. But my dad, this is just a quick, not about politics, but maybe about masculinity. My dad bowled. He in fact had a stroke at a bowling alley and never came out of it. He died oh. in 2003, but he was in a bowling alley when he had the stroke and he liked being there. So, but there was one night he came home and he had a few drinks. I was maybe 15. And he woke me up and he was like, I'm also certain, by the way, Mike, please don't misunderstand. There's probably all kinds of things that my father said that if I was able to drop into them behind, I'm sure my dad said lots of shit that I wasn't around for that I would be like, Ugh. but people are a lot of things. It's part of being human. Yes. But he put on all apologies on the jukebox at the bowling alley. He always liked that song. I must've been about 14, 14, 15. When he came home, he told me that this guy on the team that was kind of a, you know, I don't know, bit of a jerk was like, he said, uh, isn't this that faggot junkie that just killed himself? Ooh. And my dad, <laughs> who was 6'3", 280 maybe, put him against the wall and said, this is a beautiful fucking song. <laughs> and I was always like, whatever else my dad was, he was that too. He never told me, don't be the president of the poetry club at Monsignor Farrell. He was like, you're you. And I remember him going to the basement of my socialist vegan friend, Freedom Tripodi's house, where I was playing a basement show. I remember my dad like watching us play in the basement of Freedom. And Freedom had like, you know, sleeve tattoo. First person I ever met had like, uh, you know, red stars and the free Che Guevara, Fidel Castro. First person, he was my, he was, he was the education. He was that guy that you meet and you're like, what? I remember like watching Freedom and my dad talk in the back of his basement and being like, what the fuck kind of psychedelic experience am I in right now? Like, so I probably got more of where I'm led by from my mom, but I, you know, my dad's in there somewhere too. And then all of the points of from them through high school, punk rock, college, Nader, 9-11, Bernie, we're here. Oh, right. And, and, and you ended up where you are. You know, the, my default is to filter things through my own experience. Yes. And there's one sort of a jealousy for my friends who came up in a particular scene or scenes, because even as someone who loved music and still does as much as I do, I didn't realize that was an option for me until I was probably in my like late teens, early 20s. Mm -hmm. And my best friend is a hardcore dude from Philly who's been going to shows since he was like 12, 13 years old and kind of came up through a scene. But also, I think it's really cool 
that, you know, at least based on what you're telling me that your parents were supportive of this and whether it's being supportive of your musicianship or being supportive of your poetry or, or whatever it is, didn't try to put you in this box as you're a guy, you're the son of a cop, you're, you're growing up in Brooklyn and Staten Island. It, it doesn't sound like they ever said you have to be this or even like you should be this. I don't know if I'm off base here or not. No, I do think that that is largely true. I also think that it was, I also don't want to paint the picture. Like it was interesting because as you, especially as you circulate more in like, I don't know, you meet more people who are involved in creative communities or whatever, you really get a sense of like, you know, I was not that experience where like somebody like, you know, Berkeley, California, like my parents were encouraging me to write poetry at age five and read it at some we were in a yurt and we were reading poetry to, or whatever, you know what I mean? Some kind of like, like leftist dream. I did not grow up like Quintana Roo and Joan Didion and what's his name's house or anything like that. Where like, you know, you go outside in the morning and there's like Mick Jagger smoking a cigarette, talking about philosophy with your mom. That was not happening either. But what was happening was, and I don't know if this was a reaction to certain things that happened in my father's experience of parenting earlier that he regretted. I think with me and my brother and that would be more for Dan to speak to but for me I did get the sense that they were just kind of like people can play different ways one way that I could play and by that I mean like they're good at different things and we have unfortunate uh, attachments to what being good at certain things is valued more than other things I for whatever reason was able to be good at being a student okay I could get good grades I kind of think as long as that was going on Also, I did not drink or do drugs in high school. I drank twice. I smoked pot once. I wasn't straight edge, but I was was just about to ask that. Yeah. I had an older brother that was a heroin addict, you know, and he was like in and out of jails and institutions. And he was eventually contracted. We found out he had not HIV, but AIDS because we thought he had pneumonia and he had, and he was there and it turned out it was a pneumonia that was a, a complication of I'd watch drink and do some weird shit in my family sometimes and I was come from Irish you mean you can come from all kinds of people one of the people who drink a lot are Irish people all kinds of people drink a lot and whenever I hear anyone talk about like a particular ethnicity religion job that like, oh, well, you know how they drink. You know how we drink. I'm like, right. it turns out everybody just everybody, fucking drinks. Everybody drinks. drinks. Yes. yes. So I didn't really mess with that stuff. I Ironically, I ended up getting my, my like really heavy duty drinking and drug career was more like from like 18 to 28, but not in high school. I had a steady girlfriend all through high school that they knew from junior. Like I wasn't like a rebel. You know what I mean? Like they were sort of like, so let me get this straight. Like He's the president of the poetry club at an all boys school. That wasn't an especially cool thing. The club might've been six of us, you know, and he plays these shows that are like in like venues where they hold weddings or union meetings or whatever. There's no booze. And I, and I was a 90 plus student or whatever. So I think they were just kind of like, all right, dude. I don't know. What I know is when it became time and the same was true of college. Maybe if I had said, at 17, I'm not gonna go to college because I'm gonna go on tour. Maybe that would have been different. Maybe that would have been a moment where they were like, the fuck you're gonna do that? Like, what right. are you talking about? But I, I wasn't there yet with music. I knew I was always gonna play music, but I didn't know if I was gonna do that. I didn't even know if that could happen. 
you know? And I wanted to go to college and I was fortunate enough because of the student thing to be in a position where I was afforded some fin financial support, a scholarship, or whatever. So I could. And, you know, when I was graduating was when I was like, I think I'm going to try this and I'm going to continue to do these like, I was, you know, working in an office, working in a kitchen, working, doing other jobs. And they were sort of like, very matter of fact, you can try whatever you want to try, but we will not be paying for it, which was the best thing they could have said to me. Cause it was like, I had to make my rent. I had to pay my bills. I had to pay for the materials that went into the career or the pursuing the career. And not that they weren't supportive, they would come fucking see my old band play it. Like, it would be wild. You'd be at Mercury Lounge and you'd look in the back and my fucking dad would be there. But they were not financing it. You know what I mean? They weren't right. like, so, and I think that was useful. But no, I, 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 I do not, I don't think it's narrativizing, although it's impossible. Everything's narrativizing. You don't try to be, but you just are the nature of memory. But I don't ever remember being told by either of them, like, you can't do that about not not I don't mean like they had I definitely remember thousands of times I was told like you can't do that about something I was doing <laughs> sure yes but I wasn't told like you can't pursue music or you can't be interested in words or you can't and my mom's dad was like a he was a construction worker he worked on the Verrazano Bridge amongst other things died when she was 14 but he was like a soft heart he had a soft heart from what I understand I never got to meet him but tune you know would have a couple drinks and like sing and whistle and wrote poems and my mom especially with her music thing was I think more like all right he's interested in that stuff that's that's cool like no one played I had a cousin that played but I do not remember being told no about that that's that's pretty awesome just because I I think about parents who are kind of old school you know born in the 40s 50s yes. and 60s and it's get becoming different now, but boys are boys and girls are girls, and there's certain behaviors that are are native to to each gender. And of I, mean, I, I I know now at you know in my forties that all of that is a construct, but I didn't know that in my youth, in my teenage years, or maybe even in my 20s. And I still think that there are lots and lots and lots of people, more people than I'm comfortable with, who still feel like those rigid gender roles exist and would shit on a kid for either expressing any kind of, whether it's any kind of issue related to their own gender or wanting to pursue a career or having an interest that doesn't specifically correlate Confo with what, yeah. yeah. No, and I think, you know, what's interesting about that is there were enough of the markings of traditional early, late 80s, early 90s, parochial, outer borough gender identifications. Like, I, you know, I played Little League and I went to an all-boys Catholic school. But I think that there's a few things there. One is that, like, it's, uh, what's the word, like, ham-fisted or inelegant or, or not nuanced when you're 15, but, you know, I remember going in for a dress-down day at Farrell wearing a dress. Oh, really? And, yes, because, that, but there were, like, but that was, you know, like, I had a, my, my, my you know, my, whatever, you know, I think it's fairly, look, again, and aspects of his confused political 
makeup or social, whatever you want to call it, we're, we're also ham-fisted. And in retrospect, I think there are people, I know there was an interview Kurt Cobain gave with The Advocate in the early 90s. And I remember like later, it felt like he was a little bit playing dress up, co-opting certain aspects of, of like hard earned aspects of the homosexual experience and cultural. But I also actually do think in the heart of hearts, that was a person who actually did see himself as aligned with strugglers of various stripes. And I don't think it's inconsiderable to be like, I could look at Kurt Cobain and Michael Stipe. They both struck me and later Elliot Smith, who, who, who it's slightly different. He was a bit more cerebral and, and muted in some of these expressions, but I actually think that it, in some ways what he was thinking about was even deeper. But these were men that I identified as having strength of will. They had a sense of who they were but that strength of well was not like, like some kind of muscle head, nor was it some kind of like really far out, like to my sensibilities at like the New York dolls or the x-ray specs or like something that was like, oh, that's fascinating. But I don't know if I see that in myself. It was relatable. Yes, they were to me. And so I remember playing a show or two in a dress. And I mean, I, that might've been a kind of like performance or a kind of like trying something on. But it was also kind of cool to have models around that were being like, well, who, why can't a, a boy do that? And just because you might want to do that every once in a while or feel inclined to do that does not have to mean a whole raft of other things. It can just literally mean that. And sort of the subtle decommissioning of some of that stuff. And then I also met real life like riot girls, you know, and when I was a 15 year old kid that were like shaving their head dying at pink, talking to me about bell hooks and whatever else. And my girlfriend in, in high school was somebody who was learning from these people that were a little older than us. We were these kids meeting, hanging out with 18, 19 year old punk rock, hardcore leftist on fucking Staten Island. Like I think about this. Yeah, that's sort of like, like the fact that there was this like fist. And again, I'm sure if I could be dropped back into some of what was happening with respect to gender politics, racial politics, what was going on in that scene, I'm sure it would not strike me today as especially like, I don't know, nuanced or elegant iterations of, but fucking thank God that was there. I'm telling you, standing in a VFW hall on Staten Island where there's tables and there's brochures about fucking Iran-Contra and food, not bombs. And, you know, like we were doing benefits for the gay men's health crisis. And there's like on Staten Island, I, some part of me feels like I, I moved there. I didn't want to move to Staten Island when I was 11 years old. I, you don't have a choice when you're 11 years old. Absolutely. Part, I lived there from 11 to 17. My mom still lives there. I feel like she's surrounded and I think she does now sometimes too, but that's where she lives. And like, and also, by the way, there's still a lot of like progressive, intelligent art making. Staten Island's not exclusively, there's a lot of really beautiful nature. There's right. a lot of, I'm not shitting on it. I love a lot of people out there a great deal, but to have found like a kind of like punk rock scene that was indebted in its political ideologies in equal measure to like whatever kind of like hardline animal rights thing was happening in Syracuse and the kind of egalitarian nature of what was happening in Discord and DC and Ian Mackay and Fugazi and all that. And then Olympia and the Riot Girl thing. I felt like in retrospect, I'm like, that's a 
miracle too and was formative. And again, all of these things are crashing around and I still have not perfectly synthesized any of it, but it's just a per, you're a person and there's all this stuff that moves around in there. But It sounds tremendously reductive, but it's funny that my mind is a little bit blown by the fact that Staten Island has progressive pockets. Because when I think of Staten Island, I think of racism in Wu-Tang Clan, you know, basically those are the two things that kind of come to mind. And yep. obviously there's nuance to everything and it, it takes all kinds, but it, it's really cool that now I can actually mentally picture there being parts of a place that just always seems so like, so much a certain way that are not that certain way. Me too. And, and I think what was kind of fascinating about it was kind of fascinating in real time, but it was, it's, it's even more so in retrospect, not to idealize it because again, everyone, we were kids. Again, I'm sure if I could hear some of those conversations that were happening, even on the far left of this, there were, there, I'm sure there was some amount of like inelegance is a word I keep coming back to, but, but there was also a lot of really mind expanding shit. And then, you know, through that, there's all these, there's different examinations of art and different examining and also like the relationship between art and commerce between like, and the nature of like, how does capitalism get in the room? The, the kind of pure microcosmic distillation of what happens with capitalism and music, capitalism and like, and what, and then also, sorry, but synthesizing, watching this person that like, you're a 12 year old and your introduction to like hero worship with, 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 with celebrity is a guy who kind of never seems to be able to get comfortable with it. And then eventually like, childhood trauma, drug addiction, but also trying to like have some authentic core in that environment and decides to fucking blow his brains out. Formative experience at 14, if you're mm -hmm. looking to start examining certain things. And then it's so funny as you grow up, as you age, there's this almost sense of like, we leave these childish concerns behind. And I'm like, fuck that. No, we don't. They get more and more real. But I think about it with like, People like Amy Winehouse, Elliot Smith, Kurt Cobain. I think about like my, you know, Elliot had the Ferdinand the Bull tattoo on his arm. I read that story to my daughter. The thing is, Kurt Cobain wanted to go into the bull ring and convince everyone in the bull ring that bullfighting was stupid and they should plant like flat field. We should actually plant a field of flowers in the bull ring and then have a bunch of little kids who can't play guitar singing I don't I, I want to hold your hand in a corner of a bull ring and then have a feminist collage body art stuff strewn throughout but we should all stay in the bull ring and and I'm going to show you that Elliot Smith wanted to come into the bull ring and be like I'll just sit in the corner of the bull ring and they'll leave me alone but I want to be in the bull ring right I get it the bull it's seductive but the end of the fucking story is Ferdinand leaves the bull ring and goes and sits under a tree. Now that's not afforded to all of us in capitalism, but there's something in there to me about art and ambition and capital. Like some part of me is like, so maybe the fucking answer is you don't go to the bull ring or you like set up a lemonade stand down. It's like being a country doctor as opposed to being in the pharmaceutical industry or something. Right. But the influence is very warping and we live in a material environment. And there's, so I get it. I get it. Even really smart, willful people like these people who I think changed my life. I get it. I get it because when Capitol Records was like 
said all the right things in 2005 about pavement and Sonic Youth and the replacements and Elliot. And I was like, and built a spill. And I was like, maybe I'll be different. You know what I mean? Like, cause you want to think you can be, yep. you want to think you can make it work for you. But knowing that scene exists is like, it was, it was interesting because Brooklyn wasn't happening yet, but we did right. not feel a part of what was happening in the city. We went to the city. The city was like, that's also like you're 15 and you get on the ferry and you walk around and you go to these record stores in Washington Square Park and Tompkins Square Park and, yep. be, and the Life Cafe and all this other shit. And you're like, Poo! but also we were kids from Staten Island. It wasn't cool. And then we didn't feel a part of what was happening with respect to like the kind of meathead environment, right-leaning environment around us on Staten Island. So it was this very self-protected like geodesic dome, this like fist of, it's kind of something very beautiful about that. Also, a lot of those people ended up having really hard lives because all of us have versions, but there are people that I, I thought were like lions that I watched get really humbled because the world is the world. And I think that was also instructive. And the last thing I would just say about Staten Island surprising you is that in the wake of the murder of George Floyd last year, one of the places that I went to be part of a, a, a mass of people was when I saw that there was going to be a march that emanated from the Alice, no, not the Alice Austin House, the Conference House, which is the fucking South, South Shore, Tottenville. And I felt compelled to physically go to that because I was like, what the fuck is that gonna look like on the South Shore of Staten Island? And it was a very affirming in the wake of something deeply, it's fucked to say, you know, it's very complicated to try to look like say something was affirming in the context in which it was forced sure. to happen. But you were in the south shore of Staten Island and it was people everywhere flooding like you couldn't see the beginning and the end. And there were people, families, there were some people standing on their porches, letting it be known with their energy and body language, how displeased they were to have that moving through. And then there were people who were like, you know, white families setting up fucking tables in front of their house with water and snacks and signage and being like, we are, you know, I, you know, there was something to that, that it was just like, oh, it's not all only there is actually, and those in a weird way in their immediate localized context, the white family that sets up a fucking table on the South Shore of Staten Island with signs that said, we want to understand, or like, here's a bottle of water and here's a bag of fucking Cheetos or whatever. They were kind of putting themselves at a particular because yes. that march is going to end. And then you live with your neighbors who yes. have the Trump signs on their fucking lawn and are like, what the fuck was that about? You know what I mean? So I know people out there that, you know, would be like a valuable additions to this conversation. And there's a lot of people out there that would not be. Right. But there's also people in fucking Williamsburg that would not be too. Yeah, it's, absolutely. You know, you know, absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you can't paint a whole, a whole environment based on you know, what you know about some of its, it, of its inhabitants, I guess. I will just say that what you know about some of its inhabitants, though, in my experience, is not untrue. Sure. Sure. So flashing forward to 41-year-old Kevin, life experience and, and politics and all that stuff. First of all, as a musician and as a successful musician, how do you avoid the pitfalls that took some of your heroes and, and self-care is a term that gets thrown around randomly a lot, but how do you kind of manage in, in the midst of all that? And obviously we're 16 months into you not being able to, none of us really being able to move around very much. 
but how do you keep your shit together? It's funny because success is such a uh, subjective, relative word. Like I, I, I do actually feel when I'm in my most spiritually fit place, I feel like I've won the lottery because I have a one bedroom apartment in Diker Heights that is paid for by songs. And I have a career where there's no, you have to make this kind of record or write this kind of song. On the other hand, there are a lot of people who are a lot more critically, commercially, and sometimes you look at their lawn and you're like, I wouldn't mind having that. Yeah. But other times you're like, but there's a lot of bullshit that seems to come with having that lawn that I don't, I don't know. And then other times I have to detach from the narrative of that completely because are you self-aggrandizing or are you self-diminishing? And I will say, I, I'm also not delusional. Like I don't, first of all, you know, I didn't have Elliot Smith's career, let alone Kurt Cobain's career. I've had a very different career, but I will say that I think some combination of you know, we, we explored some of maybe the wor what's worse, but for better or for worse, coming from working class, Irish, Catholic, outer borough people, then coming from punk hardcore environment where there was a literal eye level thing that was happening with performer, promoter, audience. Like it was just, sometimes it was like you were just switching, like who was running sound, who was playing, who was doing the door, who was cooking the fucking pasta, who was having the, you know. Right. Some internalization of those things. Also the fact that my celebritized rock star of choice was a person who was like, this is all fucking mega weird. <laughs> and I think aspects of this are total bullshit. And you know, so that information was always in there to some extent. I've also never played a show for myself under the name Kevin Devine that was in front of more than 1300 people. And the vast majority, no, I think that's a lot of fucking people. I mean, I think that's but, a lot of fucking people. But the vast, I've also played a great many shows and not in the distant rear view but i if i go on a tour of europe next fall i promise you i will play four shows that'll have 30 people at it you know what i mean if i go play a tour in ontario toronto will look great ottawa will be pretty good go play peterborough ontario on a sunday night 2018 this was not 25 years ago it was like me and seven of my closest friends. Oh. So like my career has been, is not has been, is all of these things at the same time. So part of it is that when you combine all of what I just said, the reality I live is very different from somebody who is, there's a lot of other work experiences people have every day that are very different to mine in a way that is a lot more ground down and rooted. But in the world in which I live, it would take an act of will for me to move around in the world thinking I was some kind of rock star or celebrated person because my experience does not indicate that. It indicates something that is a much more fluid. But I would also say that like, I've been sober for 13 years. I was not sober for the 10 years prior to that in a pretty profound way. It turns out like some of that stuff catches up to you even if you're like kind of trying to be like, I'm not gonna be like that. There was some stuff that, that whether it was genealogy, trauma response, some, those things that combine to become habit forming, inclinations, 
uh, desire to be obliviated, a number of different things that can get in the room. There was some stuff that was like, I do not know how to have a responsible relationship to drugs and alcohol. And that got proved over and over and over and over and over and over and over. But the, what I first started to try to stop drinking and doing drugs in June of 2005, which was a month after I'd gotten signed to Capitol, so was in the context of signing to a major record label, making a record for a major record label, getting dropped by a major record label when they got swallowed by another arm of the parent company that owned, you know what I mean? And so to me, those experiences were all right-sizing and grounding and to be having them in the context of an experience where if you go through the experience of attempted sobriety with a community and some sort of network that emphasizes, let's say, humility and service at the expense of the of self-aggrandizement. It doesn't mean I never feel those things. It does mean that I have more mechanisms in place in my life to keep me in my skin. And I seek outside help. I see there. I talk to a therapist. Also, most of my friends are real people. I have some artist friends. They're real people too. But what I mean by that is like most of the people in my life that I speak to with great frequency are actually people who don't do what I do. And the ones in my life that are ride or die that are people who do versions of what I do, whether they're musicians or artists or actors or whatever, they're people who are operating from a place that seems like spiritually fit to me. So that's part of it too, is like, I think the way I was brought up installed a bullshit meter that for better and for worse sometimes it's hyperactive and it's probably gotten in the way but the people that have been like real and to be frank music saved my life defines my life in a lot of ways it's also riddled with there's a lot of sick people and for all the reasons we described earlier it's not even their fault on some mm -hmm. level you know, you can't, it's like the ultimate don't hate the player, hate the game is capital. I guess there are players that are capital P players that we can talk about differently. Yes, but, that's but, a different ball game. But the rest of us, I think there's some Mark's quote about self-negating angels. You can't expect people who are being ground down by a system to not at times want to utilize aspects of the system to benefit themselves because yeah. people don't want to get fucking ground down. Yeah. So that's just to say, I can feel for people in our, in my profession but keep pretty healthy boundaries about who i actually fuck with because there's some people that are unfuck with the ball for me because it's not good for me to fuck with them it messes my head up too much so i love that that's not even about them everybody's got to do what they got to do that's about right. like i don't have the spiritual fitness it's like the same reason why i go on instagram and twitter to upload something about music and then i delete the apps from my phone immediately it's the same reason why i haven't had a facebook profile as a human being since 2017 i don't have the spiritual architecture to navigate social media sanely i don't know how to do it without getting sick and crazy so i can't fuck with it I, and that's sad a little bit because i don't want to be two-dimensional but there's a part of me that's like i'm just gonna I don't put up shit about my kid, really. I don't put up shit about my romantic relationships. So people can do whatever they want on social media. I right. don't know how to do it and not feel comparative and sick afterwards. It's an issue. You know, the thing about it is in regards to all that stuff, if you're talking about having people in your life, it's not that there are bad people. There are people who are bad for you. 
That's right. Boundaries. Yeah. yeah. Yes. Or, or in terms of social media, social media is not all good. It's not all bad. It's relative to the person that's using it. Yes. And a lot of times it's also relative to what that, you know, what are you doing with it? And what time is it in your yes, life? Yes, you know, yes, yes, so. that's, that's very well said. And I need to be careful because that's part of the, what I mean about the lack of spiritual architecture. I find it very strange. I do think they are not all good or all bad, but they were literally made partly by like, just listen to any apostate from Silicon Valley talk to you about why they made the choices they made to effectively emulate casino culture or whatever. These like things that are supposed to play on your brain about yeah. why certain things are there and why they are the shape they are, or the color they are. That creeps me out. And it also feels like we all signed some invisible contract at some point to put everything about our lives in that space. And I find that confusing. Also, I'm 41. I'm not 18. <laughs> so maybe there's a part that's like, I shouldn't be fucking with it on that. Should's not a good word. Should's not a good word. For me, it's uh, it's what you said. And I don't want to feel unnecessary pain in my physical real life because of how I'm processing digital ephemeral life. That's strange. And that's a feature of us living today. But if there's parts of it I can like tailor my degree of engagement with, that then, seems like yes, a Yes, then you absolutely should do that. I yes. think more people should follow that. Well, I mean, I, listen, I'm, 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 if anything, I'm an example to be followed for sure. <laughs> <laughs> and I'll, I'll, I'll ask one more question, sort of a two-part question that I'm still trying to like figure out in my head. One is in terms of masculinity, what has been the hardest thing for you to learn or unlearn? I guess that's the first part. And the second part is that as someone who is raising a child, yeah, and I was going to say who's raising a little girl, but you know, at, at five, a kid may not know its, its gender yet. What has True. been the hardest thing to... That's, that's layered, but I think that generally speaking, for a person who is a straight, white, cisgendered, nearing middle-aged American man, with respect to a lot of things that aren't exclusive to masculinity, but fall on the spectrum of intersectionality or whatever, I think it's even, or maybe especially if you identify yourself as well-intentioned or progressive or whatever else. I think that the most challenging thing is to hold space for being teachable, receiving the critique, acknowledging the reality acknowledging that there are aspects of the reality that you cannot understand but that you can witness and then acting accordingly and acting accordingly doesn't just have to mean like in some big ticket i'm very and this is not the biggest issue we face today I am a little allergic to and very tentative about people who, that's not fair, let's not take people's inventory. I am not inclined towards a kind of what feels to me performative gestures of allyship because I think it 
for me, feels like a zero-sum game or a Pyrrhic victory or a performance. And that does not feel like an arena in which I want to perform. And I think that can be very confusing right now because I kind of feel like sometimes if you don't engage in certain things a certain way, you can actually like get sort of eviscerated for it because it gets misconstrued as you're not engaging in the dialogue or you're not doing the work. And I'm like, why does the work have to be done on social media? Anyway, it's very complicated. With respect to masculinity, I think... I have to hold space that there are myriad ways that are subtle and unsubtle in which we're trying to like undo a project that's existed as long as like, I don't know, the first like cave person who looks like me hit a cave person who looks like my girlfriend over the head with a club and dragged her around for sex and food. I'm not trying to be glib. I'm just trying like subjugation. This is in the fucking foundation right and Mm -hmm. so it's going to be a mess and it's going to be wrenching and sometimes it's going to be really painful or uncomfortable or trigger defensiveness so i think that's the making space for witnessing and the observing and also for the the trying to be teachable i also think there's something about the particular kind of competition that exists in men that i think it's very seductive and warping sometimes i do want we confuse being assertive with being like a kind of almost imposition of will or a kind of like violence of will. And so for me, I think there's had to be an ongoing, likely lifelong engagement with like, I don't want to be involved with that. And if that means that I am sometimes going to feel less than or not enough. I don't want to be involved in that kind of competition, you know? And it doesn't mean I don't have ambitions. It doesn't mean I don't want to be good at what I do. It doesn't mean I don't want to be exhibit a kind of strength of character wherever possible, but I don't want to be that kind of man. That is not appealing to me. And so that's one. And the last thing I would say about my kid is those things apply there too. I got to hold space for the fact that I can get taught by a five-year-old. I got to hold space (laughs) for the fact that I don't know everything. And I got to hold space for the fact I got to treat her like a person, not like a little girl, but also when she wants to act like a quote, little girl, I got to not be like, no, like, like overcorrecting from some like hyper leftist, like, it's like, just let her be who she wants to be and trust that she'll find it. And she doesn't need to find it by five, but also Oh, the last thing I'll say that threads those two things together. My father, for all of his, was also a person who was, he had a a volcano of anger in him. And he didn't understand that when that volcano went off, he was a five-year-old reacting to his dad, the nuns, Mm. his circumstances. But he was not a five-year-old. He was a 50-something-year-old giant. And that was like watching the Hulk become the Hulk. And then I would watch him become Bruce Banner and the shame and the guilt. Now, my version of that may be like a campfire in the sun, but I have it. And when I lose my temper with not just my kid, but my partner, my whatever, when that thing happens in me, I have to own that shit and not own it in a self-pitying way, not own it, but own it in a like, I need to 
I need to make amends and I need to try to make a different choice. I, I need to see it in myself and, and dig around. And that I think is like part of the, how do you be a man in the, whatever this means, person, masculinity, but how do you deal with that in, the, in society, in your day-to-day -day dealings with people, in your relationships with your child, in my relationship with my, my partner, in my relationship with my daughter's mother. So that's a lifelong project too, but. It is, I, I wish more people realized that. I think one of the goals of me doing this is to sort of project my own continuing experience onto people who may not realize that figuring this shit out it's not something that actually gets figured out. It's something that you have to tweak like on a daily basis. Case by case for the rest of your life and moment by moment, you will always have an opportunity to fuck it up, but that means you'll always have an opportunity to do it better. To fix it, yeah. And I think that's, we also, I think there's an internalization with masculinity that we're supposed to know everything. There's so much liberation in saying, I don't know. I don't know about that. Because there's just a little kid in me that wants to be special. I'll leave what my daughter said to me. We were at a party and her friend was running. And I said, Hannah's fast. And, he, and my daughter went, I'm fast too. And I was like, oh shit. That's what's happening in me every time I feel jealous, insecure, less than, not enough, threatened, like I don't know, like I'm going to be exposed as an imposter. It's some part of me that's like, I'm special too, right? I'm special too, right? And I was like, I don't want to light my daughter up every time she feels like that. So how do I not chastise that part of myself every time it feels like that? How do you love that guy or whatever that is a little more? so that you can move around in a different way. And that, I really hope anything I'm saying does not sound like I've fucking figured anything out because it just, all I figured out is that there's, 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 it's, I do think the, the project is how do I love myself more? And, and that sounds cheesy, but how do you, so that you can bring more equanimity and peace into circumstances? How do you act from love more than fear? And that's it. A freaking men, Kevin. Testing. Fuck, was that a good interview? Uh, thank you, Kevin, for taking time out of your schedule to chat. And thanks to those of you listening for dealing with all of the ambient noise that comes with trying to interview someone in New York City. Hopefully the subway and traffic sounds weren't too much of a distraction. And if you are a regular listener to this podcast, hey, I'm recording in my apartment. You have heard the subway sounds, the traffic sounds. You've probably heard Phil, my cat, a couple of times. So you should be used to the, uh, the ambient noise. Brooklyn is definitely in the house. Anyway, you can go to kevindevine.net to find out more about Kevin. His website also links to his Patreon, and uh, you should definitely support artists, particularly independent artists, uh, through whatever means gets them the most money the quickest, and uh, Patreon is a good source for that. But Kevin's Patreon gives you first access to upcoming record releases and tour dates. Musicians can go back on the road now, yay! Uh, you can also keep up with Kevin on the rare occasions when he uses social media on Twitter at KevinDivineTwit and on Instagram at KevinPDivine. Thanks again, Kevin. Appreciate you. 
Thanks again for listening to this episode. We really hope that you stick around and listen to future episodes or past episodes if you feel so inclined. You can obviously listen to Detoxicity on the podcast platform of your choosing. And if you want to get in touch with me, please hit me up on Instagram at DetoxPodGuy, Twitter, TizMikeJoseph, or you can email me at DetoxPod at gmail.com. Always willing to hear constructive criticism, thoughts, ideas, realizations. And if you yourself would like to be a guest on the show or you know somebody who would make a good guest, I will take recommendations from now until the end of time. So please feel free to reach out to me. I want to thank a couple of people who've been very important to this show. Uh, Calvin Williams composed the music that you hear at the beginning and end of every episode. Jacob Block composed the logo or created the logo for the show. And I want to give a special shout out to Andrew Grossman and Jeff Giles for providing inspiration for me to come up with this idea and bring it to fruition. Once again, thank you all for listening. I really, really appreciate it and take care of yourselves. Peace.